We're, we're in week five of our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And over the past several weeks, we, we've been essentially unpacking Paul's famous love chapter. A chapter in scripture that, like I said before, is often overlooked, often misused. We kind of just graze past it because it's like this is a wedding chapter. This isn't like a real life kind of thing. And, and as I've said in previous sermons, the simplest way actually to summarize the gospel can be done in just one word according to scripture, which is love. The, the New Testament actually stresses that, that love is the core of who we are as Christians. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because that's not often what the church presents the core of who we are as Christians. The church often presents it as right doctrine, as perfect ethical beliefs and living those perfect ethical beliefs. But where do those ethical beliefs come from? How do we build our doctrine in the first place? The Bible says all of it has to be rooted and built up in love. And so without love, scripture says, you're nothing but a, a gonging symbol. You're just like super annoying. Anybody know that person? Right? Don't shake your head if they're sitting beside you. It all starts with God's love. The love that we receive from his sacrifice on the cross. That amazing sacrificial love that flows out from us after we've truly received it. And, and the Bible talks about this love thing in a really, really blunt way. But it's really interesting because we often look at the gospel when we talk too much about love and being loving and love being the centerpiece of, of the gospel. We kind of say, oh, that's fluffy. Like, let's just stop. No, we need right doctrine. Let's argue and fight about those kinds of things. Listen to what a famous chapter, another one that we often graze by, is John 3.16. He says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And so scripture is establishing where love comes from. God loves us so much, it says, that he gave us the perfect expression of love in our world. And it's the willingness to give up self for another. Again, a passage that is used so much that we often just graze past its significance. But how many people quote that passage when they're sharing their faith, right? For God so loved the world. And guess what? We're to love the world the same way. This passage expresses the basics, folks, of the good news that we preach. And I, I, I'm struggling today because I feel like the gospel in so many ways is no longer good news. It's just something else because no one gets good newsy about it, right? Nobody's like, yes, I am saved by the blood and death of Jesus Christ. Like, yes, thank you. I don't deserve it. I, I don't deserve this kind of, like, we're like, no, I deserve it. Like, I, I deserve this love. I, but scripture says different, doesn't it? God showed us his love by dying for you and I because we couldn't get it right. It's the basics of the good news, and the good news is good news because God loves us. Hear this. 
unconditionally. God loves us. He didn't like die and say, boy, I hope like Kim gets her crap together because like, I don't know if I'm going to let her in. The good news is that God loves us unconditionally and sacrificially. So much so that he gave us his son, his son's life so that we could have eternal life through him. Now, the Apostle John isn't done with this. John is the love guy, right? And, and the Apostle John is not done with this. Listen to what he says in 1 John 3.16. You, you get it? John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. We know what real love is. So here it is. What, what is real love? We know what it is because Jesus gave up his life for us. Now, listen to what he says. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. So we know what real love is. The gospel, he told us that in John 3.16. And in 1 John 3.16, he says that this is how we now express that love toward others. The same way that Jesus did, by giving up one's self. And, and it's really interesting as you start to study this in Scripture because loving others is not just, it's not a suggestion, folks. It's actually a command. If we go back to John's gospel, John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, we have Jesus speaking here. And he says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. A new commandment. How many people know it's time to listen? Right? He's giving us instructions. He's giving us a new commandment, and this is it. It's interesting to me that this is the New Testament, that this is new. Right? We've had our whole Old Testament narrative, and now this is a new command. Love each other. But he doesn't just end there, right? He's not just like, you know, have emotional feelings about one another. Love's not just an emotional feeling, right? He says, love each other just as I have loved you. What did he do? Gave up his life for another. He says, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another, and I've quoted this in this series already, will prove to the world that you are my disciples. There, there it is, folks. Right? He doesn't say, like, being able to articulate uh, the doctrine of sodiotology will determine and show the world that you love me and that you're my disciples. He doesn't say, you know, based on what you believe in your ecclesiology or your Christology, will show the world that you are my disciples. He actually says, it's your willingness to give up your life that will show the world that you're my disciples. That giving up of life is how the Bible defines love. Our love for God and for each other, are the distinct marker of a Christian. This radical love, I want you to hear this, is extremely attractive and crazy contagious. Just look at the book of Acts. As I've been studying these passages, two things have really kind of hit me. One is how much I personally 
lack love at times. And two, how I can't help but be deeply grieved at how the church seems to look nothing like what scripture presents. I think it's because of these convicting passages that that we as the church make excuses because we're like, well, you know, like I know the Bible says that, but it's a command, I get it, but like I'm striving to get there. Anybody that's spent any time with scripture would understand that the concept of striving is not a biblical concept. The concept of striving, I'm going to say that again, is not a biblical concept. Rather, a biblical way of living life is by choosing to give up our lives for another in love. And that covers all areas of life. Like, I mean, you know, after all, the world is a really difficult place. There's a lot of temptation. It's very difficult to live faithfully to this command of love, to, to, to live uh, the commands that God calls us to live. Like, we should just strive to get there because, you know, the world's a tempting place. Listen to John's response to our excuses. In 1 John verse five, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus, that, that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. So it's through the window of belief, right? And anyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We're his children. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commands. We know we're his children if we love God and we obey his commands. There's that marker, that love thing. Loving God means keeping his commandments. Now listen to what John says. And his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Sometimes I wonder if we don't have a love problem, we actually have a believing problem. Like actually living life like Jesus really is the Son of God, like Jesus came, God came in the flesh and gave his life for us. I think we have a believing problem that creates our love problem. Because what John is saying here is profound and incredibly life-giving. All of us who believe that Jesus is the Christ are now children of God. Like that was like an Israel thing, right? The chosen people, the children of God. And he's ushering that in for now all who believe. This is radical stuff. Like move in your seats, kind of get uncomfortable, like kind of stuff. We're going to get the charismaticness out of you eventually, sort of stuff. So when we love God, he then says we can't help but love his children. Notice he doesn't say we strive or we work harder at it. When we love God, this is what happens. 
The way we show God, we, the way we show God our love is by living what he commands us to live. And his new command for us is to love one another. And here's the profound part. That's not a burden. His commands are not burdensome. How on earth could this be, right? Like, how many people feel like the rules in the Bible are somewhat burdensome? Like, they don't allow you to live the life that you would really choose to live. I've had people tell me, I don't want to become a Christian because then I have restrictions in my life. And then I've had Christians tell me, I'm just striving to be a good Christian, but I realize I suck at it. And, you know, I'll just keep sort of mediocrely trying and eventually Jesus will just take care of it all. The problem is, is that's not what the Bible says at all. How could this be? Interesting here. It's not a burden. We're not to see the call of love, the command of love as a burden. Because you don't want to miss what he says after that. John says that his commands are not burdensome because every child of God has defeated this evil world. And they've defeated this evil world by placing their trust in Jesus. Remember I said, you know, we can summarize the gospel as love. We can also summarize the gospel as trust. Our response to the love is to live fully trusting in Jesus Christ. It's interesting because we claim his sovereignty, but we don't live his sovereignty. And we trust Jesus through the temptations of the world. Because we now have the Holy Spirit living in us, just like Jesus did when he was tempted. And we are able to overcome those temptations. Folks, the Bible doesn't like, like mess around with this. It's like believe, trust, and live. Now, it understands that there is growth, that that there's a process to our maturity, but what gets frustrating is, is those of us that are 20 years in and still acting like babies. And Paul deals with that in the book of 1 Corinthians, the book where he's writing this love chapter. Here's Christians who are claiming to have all these spiritual gifts, claiming to be prayer warriors, claiming to be all of these different things. But Paul says, I got to keep feeding you milk because you're nothing but infants. You're refusing to grow. But the Bible calls us to mature, living through God's commands as we mature, become our natural disposition Because we trust God more and more. We believe more and more each day as we mature. Folks, this is important to understand. And it's the exact thing that this week's passage is about to deal with. You see, according to scripture, if you love God and place your trust in him, you will love others and you will live sacrificially because you no longer place yourself and your way above others. This is the love that scripture's talking about. And in today's passage, we're being told what love is not. And Paul does this to show us exactly what it is that pulls us away 
from loving God and loving others. This passage today is going to tell us why we don't mature in Christ. And it's gonna make you really uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, you're gonna wanna debate it. You're gonna wanna argue with it. You're gonna wanna stand up for your way. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm gonna read from the English Standard Version today, which is a more literal version of the Bible. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. So we've taught up to that point. Now, listen to what he says. It does not, hear hear this, insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Love does not insist on its own way. Instead, it places its trust in God's way. (laughs) Think about this for a minute. I'll just let that rest. Just take a moment. How many people love their way? There it is. This is exactly why we often see God's commands as burdensome because we want things to be our way. We want control of everything. As a general principle, folks, Paul says that love does not seek to control others. However, if you've spent any time observing human behavior, you'll quickly see our controlling behavior. It's almost natural for us as human beings to always want control over others. As a matter of fact, it's so natural that it's subtle and we see it as just being a good business person or being a good leader. We want to control, we talked about this in Ecclesiastes, the outcome of all things. But what did Ecclesiastes say? That's hevel, that's meaningless. You can't control the outcome of all things. Actually, if we link that with this, if you are trying to control the outcome, it's sin. Our natural disposition, though, as human beings is always to want control over others. But why? Why do we need this control? Why do we need to control every step of every moment in our lives and everybody else's? Well, folks, it actually is rooted in our faulty understanding of our knowledge of reality. We have a really skewed, sin-based understanding of our knowledge of reality. Our understanding of reality is often rooted in Genesis 2 and 3, and we really struggle in life to move beyond this because we're control freaks. We're what one theologian calls, and I love this, the omniscient mechanism. It's the omniscient mechanism in us as human beings. Omniscience is the theological word for all-knowing. God is omniscient. God knows all things. And he's saying that our need for control is our omniscience, us thinking that we know all things, that we have somehow become equal with God. It's our omniscient Mechanism. You, could, you can write that down. It's, it's actually brilliant theological thought. 
Our omniscience mechanism is the basis for our belief that we know more than we actually do. And it's us believing the lie of Satan. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, God provided the provision. He said, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. That's verse 16. But then he also provided us with a prohibition, didn't he? He says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That's verse 17. So eat all the tree, eat from all the trees, just not that tree. This is the way life can be structured. I know I'm, I'm omniscient. I know all things. You don't know all things. You're what's called finite. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve dismissed the prohibition in order to, with, as an attempt essentially to provide for themselves. So it's the first time what I'm talking about actually happens. And it's because we believe the lie of the devil. If you eat from this tree, you will know what God knows. You see, rather than trusting God, we think that somehow we know all things and we actually begin to act like God. This is exactly what the enemy wanted, and he's still winning today. Good thing he already lost, right? Here's the problem. We do not know what God knows. He's omniscient. We are finite. We have glimpses into the, the, the picture of good and evil, but it's just a glimpse. It's not all-knowing knowledge. We are finite, and we're only able to understand small pieces of the bigger picture. Now, I could go through Scripture and show you, like, that is a huge theme throughout Scripture. We're finite. God is omniscient. It's that simple. In other words, we're given a glimpse into the knowledge of good and evil, but we do not have a complete understanding of it. The devil lied to us. Only God exclusively holds the complete knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, when human beings attempt to demonstrate an ability that is only possible for God, the result of this is often disastrous. Let me just break this down a little bit. Here's the human condition. We think our perception of the world is the right perception. Everybody in this room right now has a perception of the world, and you think your perception of the world is the world. Psychologists agree with this, and theologians agree with this simple concept. We all sitting here as finite human beings, we see the world a certain way, and we want everybody in the world to see the world the way we see the world. The problem is, is this destroys God's design and, as Paul says, is the opposite of love. When we think that our way is the only way and we insist that everyone does things our way, you ever thought that? They shouldn't do it this way, they should do it this way because my perception of the world is right and their perception is obviously wrong. When we think that our way is the only way and we insist that everyone does things our way, Paul says, you are not expressing love. Instead, you're projecting sin. You're trying to act like God. It's subtle though, isn't it? 
And in humanity, we've almost made it part of our competence. But it's sin. Do you know why? Because no one listens. No one's listening. If we don't begin to allow other perspectives of life to be heard, we are missing a beautiful part of the human experience. If everything has to be done your way or it's wrong, you're going to live an interesting life that pulls yourself away from God and his commands will become burdensome. And we're all like this in, in one way or, or another. Instead of loving, we control situations and we insist on our way. This, this is, we see this all through scripture. Uh, but a great place to look at this is actually in the book of Job because we have this narrative of Job going through suffering and difficult, horrific, uh, at times, loss and things like that. And who comes along in the story of Job? His buddies. So Job has his perspective of the world And so he's going through and we see a little bit of that narrative. And then his buddies come and they're like, no, your perception of the world, Job, it's not like it's skewed. It's messed up. It's not quite like mine. And so I'm going to project mine onto you. In Job chapter four, verses seven to eight, this is what one of his, so so here's a friend who's suffering in agony, uh, going through all kinds of difficult things. And this is what his buddies have to say. Stop and think, right? Stop and think, Job. I know you're going through horrible stuff, like I get it, but do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience, Job, right? My perception of the world, Job, I'm about to project that onto you, shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Anybody have a friend like this? It's like, actually, the problem is you, And if you just change to be like me, then all will be well. His buddies are projecting Job's problems back onto him. He's the problem and he is the reason that he's suffering because that's his friend's theology. But quickly, Job realizes that they actually have ulterior motives. So Job's a smart guy. He sees into this. And so here's his response in chapter 6. The caravans turn aside to be refreshed, but there's nothing to drink, and so they, they die. If we jump down to verse 20, they count on it but are disappointed. When they arrive, their hopes are dashed. You, too, have given no help. In other words, guys, stop projecting your garbage onto me. You don't get it either. You've seen my comedy, and you're, you are afraid, Job says. Again, Job's buddies projecting their understanding of the world onto Job. This doesn't help Job at all. He continues to suffer. Now, even at times in the book of Job, Job projects his own understanding of the world into the situation too, because we're all guilty of this. In chapter 24, verse 12, Job says this, the groans of the dying rise from the city and the wounded cry for help, yet God ignores their moaning. He's feeling alone, right? Now, it's interesting, I can't give you, if you go to Job chapter 38 to chapter 40, you can actually read God's response to this nonsense. 
this back and forth that's happening with Job and his buddies and all these different perspectives of why people think Job is suffering. And what God says, you're going to have to read that for yourself. So go to Job chapter 38 to chapter 40, read through all of that. What God says is profoundly important for us to hear. And it's, this is the part where you're going to get really uncomfortable, especially you doctrine folks who insist that a specific doctrine is the only way. Essentially what God responds to Job and his buddies about is with a lesson that humanity struggles to understand. Human beings think that everything needs to be black and white. It's either good or it's bad. It's either yes or it's no. It's either right or it's wrong. But God tells Job, so that's a finite way of thinking. The omniscient way of thinking, the all-knowing way of thinking responds like this. That he alone understands that life, so God understands this and he's trying to explain this to Job, life is full of ambiguities. It's not black and white. And if you're looking for a black and white world, you will do nothing but project your way onto others. And until we begin to understand that this concept of ambiguity and accepting it, we will always struggle with thinking that we need to control everything and that our perspective of the world is right and everyone else is wrong. But love, love learns. This is the thing about maturing in your faith. Love learns that life is full of ambiguities. You ever heard the saying, we can't judge a book by its cover? But we often do. We almost always do. We get trapped into projecting our way onto others as if it's the only way. And when someone doesn't agree with us, it causes us, which is the next part of this, to be irritable and resentful. You notice, see that, right? Love does not insist on its own way. And when it does, and you don't get your own way, you become irritable and resentful. This is part of our fallen nature, folks, but God gives us the cure. God is calling us to embrace ambiguity and to understand that we're finite and that only God knows the big picture. And so other people's views of the world are a beautiful thing to hear, to listen to, to learn about, and to understand. Because only God fully understands. Folks, we are seeing the greatest example of the omniscient mechanism in today's world right now. Everyone seems to know more than they actually know. It's, it's pretty funny, actually. Everyone thinks that their way or their belief on something is the right belief or the right way. And scripture says that's not loving, which is exactly why we're struggling with unity in our churches today. And precisely why our churches are not reaching the people who Jesus attracted. If you want proof of that, look to your right. 
look to your left, look in front of you, and look behind you. We are not reaching the people that Jesus attracted. Jesus attracted the marginalized because he saw the world as ambiguous. Jesus understood that people are different and each person experiences the world differently. I'm going to give you a very, very quick lesson of something that I think is really important for us to learn. To Jesus, he knew two important things about humanity. One, everyone's a sinner. Not just some, not just that person over there, right? We have all kinds of narratives in scripture that, you know, Lord, thank God I'm not like that person over there, right? Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus says everyone's a sinner. And the other thing is, all of humanity have infinite worth before God. Again, not some of humanity, not just the upright in society, but all of humanity. So Jesus' lens is simply these two things. Everyone is a sinner, and everyone has infinite worth before the Father. These two things are what drive the love of Jesus. They're the only two things that we can truly know about another person. Anything outside of these two things are us projecting our view of the world onto others, making our way the only way. I learned this many years ago when I started to work in a homeless shelter and with those struggling with addiction. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a story, and until you know their story, participate in their story, spend time listening and experiencing their story with them, you don't have any idea of why they're homeless or addicted. But don't we often project our thoughts of why onto others? Everyone has a story, and I quickly learned that the best way to love another person is to see them through the lens of these two things. You see, here's this conservative pastor inserted into this homeless shelter, navigating transgender issues, homosexuality, addiction issues. And you, you, you kind of have a choice to make, right? Right? Am I going to see all of these issues through the lens of Jesus? Or am I going to see all of these issues through the lens of my privileged white power that just doesn't get the world? And anybody that was like, oh, he used that phrase, you just proved your privilege. Folks, Everyone has a story, and until we hear their story and we engage with their story, we don't know how God sees them. Oh, except that they have infinite worth. All people. I quickly learned this in that setting. And I functioned in that setting with these two things. Everyone's a sinner, including me, and like Paul says, I could be one of the worst. And all humans have infinite worth before God.
God loves all of humanity and he calls us to love them the same. So rather than project our finite understanding of the world onto people, we can choose to just love in a way that sees others as equally broken human beings that need God just like we do. Life is ambiguous. If you want life to be black and white, you're going to have a lot of cortisone flowing through your body because of the stress that you're living under. Doesn't that describe our culture today? Control freaks are stress balls. We have to be willing to listen. We have to be willing to experience life from a different lens and learn from others rather than project our way onto them. And then as our relationship grows, we can share the love of God with them and show them their worth in Jesus. But it's awful difficult to show somebody their worth in Jesus if you're not actually living your worth in Jesus. The only way to do this, folks, is to place our trust in God to not believe the lie of the enemy that we are omniscient, but to understand in humility that we are finite, to accept that we don't have everything figured out, that our our need for control is exactly what hinders us from loving someone unconditionally. So we need to learn to let go. All of us are sinners, and we all have infinite worth in God. And when we start to see the world that way, it will transform your disposition and you'll begin to see the world how Jesus sees it. God's love will then pour out to others. It won't be burdensome. You won't have to strive because you'll be, you'll be maturing in your faith and it will flow out And then everyone, everyone, you can come on up to me. Hear me now. Everyone will feel accepted and loved by the church. I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that this is the kind of love we're projecting to others. Because the feedback that I get from many is the last place I'd go for help is the church. But that's because the church is projecting its view of the world onto the world when in fact we're supposed to project God's infinite worth onto the world.